0: Hi, friends. This is the latest edition of our virtual immersion, which are visceral and vulnerable conversations with Palestinian and Israeli peacemakers, our friends and colleagues who are embedded in the trenches of this war. It's been a really unique experience for us to have these one-on-one conversations and get in touch with some really hard realities, while at the same time, get in touch with some of the hope that our Israeli and Palestinian peacemaker friends and colleagues hold in this time. It's a dark season. It's a dark moment in our world. And the peacemakers don't avoid it. We actually run right into the middle of it. And we give our lives for the sake of healing and restoration. And that's what's happening in these conversations. We're hearing about it. And hopefully it's growing our capacity as peacemakers here in our own spaces. In this conversation, I want to introduce my good friend Mahmoud Subu. He and I have been friends for over a decade. And he's given his life to working with young people who are being raised in this trauma and he's teaching them how to heal so that they can choose reconciliation rather than revenge. We talk about that and we talk about raising peacemakers in the midst of all of this. It's a really, really intimate conversation and I'm excited for you to, to have access to it here. And so friends meet my friend, Mahmoud Subu man. Thanks for fighting to get on with me. It's really good to see your face. It's been way too long since yeah. I've seen you.
1: Me too.
0: But it's been a while. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's been too long. One of the things that I was just saying to folks before you were coming in and is that like these conversations aren't scripted conversations. These are conversations between friends and you know, people who love one another dearly and know each other's kids and care about each other's wives. And, you know, and so at the very beginning, like this is a deeply human reality, a, a connection between brothers. And so can you just bring us into how you're doing and what is the experience of this right now for yeah. you I, I let folks know that of course you're coming in from the west bank and many of us who are watching understand that the west bank is different than the gaza strip yeah. but maybe if you can even help us understand where are you calling in from right now and yeah and just like how are you doing man just like what's the general state of you at the minute and then we can talk about what's happening but I, we want to hear from you and how you are
1: yeah. well I mean, I live in the city of Naples, which probably is some of, you know, our friends came to visit, which is in the north of the West Bank. Naples is a very politically active and, I mean, throughout the years of the whole story, but most recently in the last two years, with all lot of phenomenons of young people, you know, forming resistance groups against the Israeli occupation. So the city was going through a lot of atrocities and a lot of young people were killed in the clashes with the Israelis. When it comes to how am I doing, I'm not doing well at all. I am not okay. I'm very tired. I'm very exhausted. I am a father. You know, I have two boys and I have a girl. Their teenagers, which is the hardest time probably for all of us as parents, and to have them also living in Naples and under the whole situation that we are going through with what's going on in Gaza. I mean, even before the war was a challenge, you know, because of the normal situation in Naples with a lot of clashes and a lot of resistance. Um, that makes any young boy, especially the boys, you know, with a lot of emotions and feelings of belongings to their community and knowing or not knowing the people who were lost and the fight. But it's a lot of emotions and those emotions can become very scary at certain points that for me as a father, you know, I'm worried that kids will just run and go after demonstrations or go with the gunman or just being affected like any growing up child you know a teenager with a lot of hormones a lot of emotions that was before Gaza and now imagine how it could be with what's going on with Gaza especially that my father's side of the family they live in Gaza I have have tens of cousins and of course with a lot of siblings and live in Gaza. I have four or five aunts, also live in different places in Gaza, and they all have siblings who are grandfathers now, and so we talk about thousands of family members that I don't know most of them, but I mean, I know their parents, their grandparents, and they're my family. And this is the worst part, you know, because I mean, since day one, I'm trying to connect to contact those people, they're just normal people. They're workers, they're doctors, they're teachers, and he, with kids. And now it's almost impossible to reach any of them. I was able to reach some of them sometimes, but their situation is horrible. We have lost many of the cousins with their families. I cannot really count the number. And the others lost their homes. And my daily routine is hooked up to the news, hooked up to all the social media, to all means of communication and trying to call all the time, but no reaction. Finally, I send a message or I get a message that we are alive. Alhamdulillah. Thank God we are alive. Don't worry. And then it goes for days. And then sometimes, I mean, now I have no connection with anybody. And... uh, I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. You know, it's total insanity. And I'm watching the news and they are bombing Area A or Area B or this place or this place. And so many neighborhoods that they were bombed and I have family members there. And uh, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know how to really describe this. I mean, I'm watching the news. Maybe some of them are my family members, but I don't know them. You know, different generations and I haven't been together since the last four years and when i went there i mean i met some of the older ones that i know them from before but the second generations or third generations i don't really know them i know these some names but it's very horrible to watch all the atrocities that are being broadcast directly on al jazeera other local channels and seeing this carpet bombing in mass killing of families. I mean, my aunt in Jebel, two of her sons, their their daughters, like whole family of their daughters were wiped out, like their grand lost. you know, and, and I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I can even express those feelings, I mean. Just seeing all those and people, you know, children, especially children. I mean, yes, I have children, but I have dedicated my life in Palestine, working with youth centers, working with children, teenagers. I mean, I gave up my life in the U.S., which was very luxurious, very comfortable, and came and lived and stayed in, in the place where I grew up, which is a refugee camp in Neblis. And try to provide and serve and help those children to grow up with some new alternatives because they have no alternatives. I mean, they have nothing to think about for the future. And it was a very hard work to do, you know, to do, I mean, to try to give hope to people who have no hope. And it worked out in many cases, all the time, but in many situations that there was a change. And I'm very proud of it. But now we are at the point that even us are losing hope because, I mean, we see the whole world is just joined up together against two million civilians, for God's sake. And ice killing, it's like, it's a genocide. It's, I mean, it's horrible. And people are just, I don't know, I mean, as if nothing is happening. I mean, I'm an American at the same time palestinian but i'm also american and that makes me very ashamed you know of being also part of this and i know i mean i lived in america and i knew a lot of people and i know more people now than you and john and you know others and this is just kills me when i see people living their life in a normal way and they see children ripped apart their bodies are scattered all over the place. Their parents are collecting their body parts, putting them in bags so they can bury them, and they can say, So, upon a time, you know, those pieces of meat were my daughter or my son. And I mean, thirty days of this constant killing and destruction, and, and it just makes me feel like Everything I believe in, you know, humanity and, you know, peace and peace building, peacemaking, everything is just up in there, you know. And this situation, this is it's a horrible situation that we are in and uh, that we are all in, whether we are joining and feeling about it or ignoring, because this is... A historical moment in the whole, you know, history of mankind. This is a new era in history will hold us all accountable for what is happening by saying something, by shutting our mouths and ignoring what is happening. We will all be held accountable by history and then one day we will all depart this world, you know, and we will go and we will stand in the front of God. I and mean, God will judge us and he will ask us, what the hell have you been doing, you know, on my earth? And my people, my children are being killed, slaughtered. And you are just stepping aside and doing nothing. Go out dancing and eating and drinking and driving your car and living your La Vida Loca. And not even noticing what is happening to those people. You know, it's like losing faith in everything, except like faith and this is our destiny, you know? I mean, we think that maybe this is the what God wants for us, you know, as Palestinians and especially the people in Gaza to be the ones suffering on earth, you know, the chosen one, the real chosen one who mm-hmm. will take all the suffering. Of the villains of earth you know and then we will be rewarded with something much better i hope so you know from the other side of our lives
0: thank you i don't i mean i i feel like to say to express anything after that jill's distance thank you for keeping it straight keeping it real i mean i even signed I find strength and solidarity with you as a fellow peacemaker. Cause you're one of, you're one of the fiercest peacemakers I know. And to hear you also say in this moment of despair, like I don't need, it all feels like it's up in the air and I, that just feels real, you know? And so brother, I love you. And, and I feel your sorrow and, and from afar, I'm man, I'm breathing all of the energy and support and the care to you that I possibly can in this moment. And, and father to father, you know, mm-hmm. I also know, because you and I in our entire friendship has spent a lot of time talking about how do, raise, how do we raise peacemakers? I mean, in our work, we form peacemakers, but one of the questions you and I have always been talking about for over a decade is how do you raise peacemakers in a world that's etched by pain? And, uh, yeah. and so I, I wonder if you can... Uh, as a father, talk to us a little bit more, if you're up for it, around, you know, like you got three beautiful children who have been raised in this insanity, who are watching what's going on. You said they're teenagers now, especially you all this, mm-hmm. you're the teenager now. Yeah. What are, you, what are you willing to share with us around like, what is it like to be a dad in the midst of this your, What are you like? How, what's the concern that you have? Is there hope? What does it mean to be a father, especially to your eldest son right now, who I imagine is rattled. That's probably an understatement by what it is that he's watching on his phone. You know, so it's like, yeah, beyond the professional, yeah, like, talk to us at like, as a dad, what's it like, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, as simple as it it could be, I mean, we are all fathers, the most important thing in our life, you know, is our family, our children. And we are willing to sacrifice our life to serve our children. That's who we are. At least I know I am this way. I know you are this way, you know. And this is nature. This is how we are all built. And this is like the normal living situation. So imagine when you are in a situation that is out of control. I mean, I raised my children from the beginning to be open-minded, to accept everybody to accept it. the others religious not religious whatever they have in their mind or their thoughts that we respect as long as they show me respect i do respect you know the others and you have met them they have met a lot of my international friends and we have this open relationship you know i mean i raised them to be open and to be honest and Nothing to be hidden, whatever they want to do, they want to say, we talk about it. I mean, I'm proud of this kind of relationship with my children, which I think it, it's good because they can come and express any feeling that they have. <laughs> you know, they don't find borders. They don't really hesitate to come and talk. But teenage boys are teenage boys, you know, I maybe mean, <laughs> when they go crazy, this is normal doesn't matter. Palestinian, American, Israeli, Canadian, Hindus, whatever. They want to tell us that they are growing up, that they are, you know, they have their own personality. They are mature enough to make decisions, you know. And I cannot collide with them, but we have to talk, to discuss. And all the time, we try to talk about what's going on. I mean, they keep asking about our family in Gaza what's happened, what happened with them. And I see the sadness, I see the frustration and sometimes this accumulation of anger. But I see that the more you have an open space to talk about it or to talk about what is going on and also any yeah, accepting, you know, the situation. And I'm understanding that we Palestinians, even though they are Americans too, you know, that. We have this story. we have this I don't know is it is a blessing or it's a curse, but this is what we have, and we have to take it somehow, you know, and to believe that God created us, He put us here for a reason, mm-hmm. and definitely there will be a payoff, you know for it maybe in the other life, because faith is very important, believing is very important. Mm. And, uh, but as I said, talking about it all the time, sometimes we sit down, we play cards, just for a change. Yeah. I have good relationship with young people. So all their friends, they like me. So our house is always full of their friends. Seems like they are yeah, Maybe they don't have that relationship with their families. But I'm very open with them and I go out with them. I take them from here to there, you know, to places and yeah. I make play cards sometimes with them. So they're very comfortable. So I open my house for them to come and have uh, this venting out, you know, talking, open their hearts, have discussions. Even if they start screaming at each other and throwing stuff on each other, parts or pieces. Of- chocolate or whatever, but just to get this passive energy to get it, to, to get it out.
0: Mahmoud, I think uh, that's, uh, I think that's, it's amazing to me. Like, I I think the essence of your work for so many years as a peacemaker has been awakening the imaginations of young people, walking with young people who have been traumatized by structural violence. Yeah. Into into a way of life where they choose reconciliation over revenge, where they have a more pro-human approach, even to those who hold the guns that are their oppressors. Like that's been your work. And I know, and this is true for you, you and I were chatting last week, like your work and the work of so many other peacemakers right now has been frozen or stalled out or funding has been dropped or, you know, and and what I find remarkable about what you just expressed is that you're taking all of your superpowers as a peacemaker and you're creating space for your kids and their friends right now, doing the exact same things in your home that you've been doing in Centers for Peace and Reconciliation for, for years and years. Yeah, It's good work, my friend, and thank you for doing it. I can't imagine as a father what it must be like trying to create some semblance of joy or call it normalcy or call like a break from the insanity. But I'm imagining that in providing those moments the souls of these young people are able to take a breath or a gas. You know, and and that that feels like holy work.
1: You know, this is the least that we can do. Cause I always said that believes your beliefs and something in the normal times it's very easy to brag about it. To say I am a a very good Christian, I am a very good Muslim, I am a good human rights advocate, I am the greatest, you know, strongest, I don't know, whatever. But under disasters, under situations that are not stable, the real thing show up. If you are a real believer, if you have faith that is for real, then it will show, you know, under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. When you are not at home, you are the weakest part. You are under the most atrocious situation. Then I can see if you are a true believer or if you are a good advocate, a true peacemaker or whatever label you want to see. So those situations where you need to show who you really are you know In can be good times when it's convenient when it's easy i can speak forever and make the whole world believe that i am the new messiah you know but that it's said that damn the reality when it is the real time that's when i said you know that this is something real Real that is happening. It's a new Holocaust that is being committed. It's a new genocide that is being committed in the front of everybody. This is where I show myself. If I am real human being or not, or if I am just a fake human right advocate or pretend that I am, you know, a nice person or a nice human, this is where I can see who you are, you know, hold on but the moments of reality, the moments of truth. And under those circumstances, this is where we become creative. You remember, to be creative in love, to be creative in peace making. This is the time. This is the time. I mean, I know a lot of Jewish people. I have Jewish friends. And they ask, even in Israel, And to say something about this. You know, this is like being a traitor. But for my children, now they understand that Jewish people can be really good people. But Zionism is the problem, which is a problem also for the Jewish community, for the Jewish people. When I show them some of my friends who are leading the Jewish Voice for Peace and entering, you know, the Congress and in New York or in Washington, D.C., and being very activist, pro-peace, pro-humanity. Pro Palestine. This is also only a responsibility, you know. As I said, it's not just by saying slogans or bright words. This is the real thing. And when I thought that maybe when those kids come and they come and sit and we hang out together and make some fun and cry sometimes, get very angry sometimes, you know, I go to Balata also. I go to the center. I see how frustrated they are, you know, how, how damaged they are. Sometimes, you know, it's only just being there, just talking to those people, giving them the space to just talk, to just express their feelings, you know. Give them the feeling that I love you. I care about you, you know. It's okay. It's, it's difficult. It's not just difficult. It's almost impossible. But hey, we have to survive. We have to, yeah, we We have to support each other, even though it's some work, or you know, grabbing a cup of coffee, or let's go do some activities. I mean, anything simple. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything that we can think about to keep our sanity at those moments. I think this is very blessed. Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's feeling. Really, I'm just so moved by the notion that crisis. It's in the moments of crisis that, that indicate who we really are. You know, this moment calls for all of us to be the absolute best versions of ourselves from wherever we are on the planet. You know, what an incredible challenge for me today and Mahmoud. Let me ask that there are three, three things that I have been moved by and I've learned from you in, in the work of peacemaking that I, I want to just explore with you and so that your message and some of the ways in which you've lived this actually impacts many more. First and foremost, I've heard you say over time that there's a difference between the Jewish people and the Zionist occupation. And, and in this moment, the re- reality of that occupation is more severe and intense and intense than it has been in, in, perhaps ever in Gaza. And I think that we're beginning to see the implications of that increasing the occupation the grip of the occupation strengthening on the west bank impacting your life significantly i'm wondering how in this time how have over time you differentiated between a system a zionist occupation structure and the structural violence that comes with that and the jewish human right because i'm hearing in the west so much of the conversation is like we want to equate hamas equals Palestinian, equals Muslim, equals terrorist, equals enemy. and Or we want to say, you know, Jewish equals Zionist, equals terrorist in a different way, equals enemy, you know? And it's like, we're just creating these false binaries and equivalencies that are just simply increasing the heat of violence. And I've heard you over time do an incredible job differentiating the human being from the system. How have you done that? And what is it like, again, visceral and vulnerable, what is it like to do that right now when the system is creating such a catastrophe, to, especially to people that you love?
1: Well, well, I mean, it's not that easy, but as I should at the end, I look at myself as a human being, regardless of my faiths or beliefs. And all my life, I trained myself to deal with people as people. I never could. You know, if you are Christian or Jews or Hindus, I don't care. It's not my it's not my issue. I mean, if I know or if I want to know, it's just because I want to be cautious, so I don't hurt you or say something that will offend you, or just you know. I mean, in the positive side, not to to attack you or accuse you. You are, whatever Christian or Jews, whatever. And maybe that labeling you know, of humanity and being a human being comes first. That's how it started. I mean, I meditated, I read a lot. I'm aware of Zionism and what it's doing to to Israel, what it's doing also to the U.S. You know, I mean, it's like holding the U.S. from the neck. And it's all about business and money and power and control of resources and all that stuff. And also dealing with many Jewish people, you know, in the US or even in Palestine here or Israel, as I said, if you deal with people and they deal with you on the same basis that, you know, we're humans and create mutual understanding and acceptance of each other. And then you see the ones who are Zionist, that they are, and sometimes you feel like they are not really Jewish, you know, Mm. they're just colonial people. I mean. People who don't care about anybody—they don't even care about their own Jewish people—and they are very racist. They are very like super, you know, supremacist. I don't know. I forget how to say the word.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And I mean, like, I see a lot of like Jewish people suffering in Israel because they are poor and because they are from Ethiopia or from African descent or from Middle Eastern descent. And I mean this is not Judaism. You know? I mean the words of God came to Moses or to Jesus or Ahmad, talking about the people, all kinds of people. It's not limited to black or white or Asian or ethnic or you know, that's it doesn't it went to everybody. So I think by the time and of course how much you are aware of your surrounding and educated and also contact. You know, human contact mm-hmm. giving its ability to see the difference between you know, the good ones or the bad ones, you know, the ones, because, I mean, I knew people in Davos, the they were Jewish. I never thought about this. I didn't even know, you know, when I was at mm-hmm. my university in Palestine, I had a lot of Christian friends and I didn't know they are Christian, you know, until the Christmas game. I never thought about it, you know, I never think about it. It's just like, this is a good friend. Mm. This is a good person. There could be a Muslim person who is fanatic and he's evil. The same thing, you know, I mean, the problem that was created throughout this whole thing that some people in power created powerful people who are extremists and those extremists tried To make stereotype of the whole community that they belong to, like Al-Qaeda or Daesh, to stereotype all the Muslims that they are, you know, bad. And if you come to Israel and you see those Jewish settlers, you know, which I don't consider them Jewish, they are just extreme Zionists, anybody will see them. You know, they will say all the Jewish people are extreme, are killers, are mass killers. The same thing for Christians. When you see some of those white, right-wing Christians, you know, and how they deal with the human beings, it doesn't matter even in the U.S., you know. You think that all Christians are bad this way, but this is not the reality, you know. I mean, we all have responsibility. As I said at the beginning, you know, it's my responsibility as much as Jer. As X or Y, you know, to follow my heart and also follow the real teachings mm-hmm. of any religion mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Or things, you know, that talks about brotherhood. Mm-hmm. It's not about the differences, it's about, you know, how we can connect. Okay. I have some different things from you as a Christian or as a Jew, but at the end, we all relate to one God, one God, you know. And I don't think God has favoritism, you know. He's got right. he's not gonna do that. Otherwise, he's not eligible to be a God. Mm-hmm. You know? So the same for us. I have to look at everybody, regardless of their color of their eyes, or the color of their skin, or you know, if they're beautiful or not, or they're coming from the south or north or you know, like humans like me. Yes. This way, I will connect with you. I will connect with even with a rabbi, you know, I will connect even with the devil, you know, it's about mutual understanding, mutual respect, you know, and that's how you can develop those skills. It's not something that you learn at school. It's how you build yourself. But as I said, with no references, with no stereotypes, with no prejudgment, you know, it's just straightforward. Human to human, and this isn't the worst thing that this is very difficult thing to do. But if you have the will, believe me, you will do it.
0: Yeah, Mahmoud, in, you know, in my tradition, we would say you're preaching, my friend, you're preaching right now. And I, 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 the the deeper that I go, especially with the traditions and in relationships with you and Jewish siblings, I just keep finding that at the essence of our tradition, the essence of our faith, it's a deep passion to remake the world and the acknowledgement that we need to do this together. You know, that the very essence of our traditions, should we be like faithful followers of our traditions, we're actually reaching for each other's hands rather than for power. Yeah. You know, and we're acknowledging the humanity and the dignity and the image of the creator in one another and we're linking hands. In actually remaking the world with Nan and everything. and and I lament, I grieve right now the way and I think we're watching it play out, the ways in which religion has been weaponized to control and to dominate and to separate, you know, and which is a break from all of the traditions. To win is to break from our three traditions. And and so and I hear that, I hear in what you're preaching it, if you can let me use that term. Uh, that at the very essence, this all begins. And what we say with global immersion is that belovedness is the bedrock of peacemaking. What we mean by that, it's like we have to acknowledge first and foremost that we are beloved. And if I can, be- if I believe that I'm beloved, then I can see that you are too. But if I don't believe that I'm beloved, then I'm going to use you to try to achieve my belovedness. You see what I'm saying? Right. And so, like, there's the, the work that we have to do right now as individuals in the interior world to remember I am human, I am cherished, and so are they. You know, and I think if we, if we can begin in our waking moments with that, I think it will actually fuel us to live our lives responsibly to that rather than trying to achieve belovedness by conquering or consuming somebody else, you know, and I, I feel like you've been a master teacher for me in that regard, not only in the thoughts that you offer, but in a way that I've actually watched you do that with others, but with me, as a Christian brother, you know, in the, in the revolution with you. One of the things that, and uh, I I think you're uniquely positioned to offer some commentary into this, over here in the West, I mean, clearly it's very easy for us to, to dehumanize Hamas, and the pictures that circulate in the West are of these men, it seems to be men in black uniforms, with black, you know, like a ninja black covering, green, and all these things. And you have trained me to look at their eyes. And so whenever I see a picture of Hamas insurgents, I'm looking at their eyes. And I'm not looking at their guns and I'm not looking at their regalia. And the same thing is true because you've taught me this. The same thing is true as I look at... Israeli soldiers right now. When I was, I was being evacuated and I was sitting at Ben Gurion airport by arrivals. And I was waiting to be able to get through onto my plane. And I watched hundreds upon hundreds of young men and women, Jewish kin, coming back from all over the world as reservists yeah. to, to fight this war. And you trained me to look at their eyes. And... You know, so I, I see in these young people, I see in their eyes that they are young people who have been socialized into a system that demands the perpetuation of violence in order to achieve something. It's like their imaginations have been calcified for a way of moving in this world where we can actually put down our guns and reach for the hand of one another. And um, so I see similar things in the eyes of both of these people. You know, and it, specifically as I'm looking at Hamas insurgents, and this is what I wanted to talk to you about, I'm looking at their eyes and I'm like, these are like 23-year-old kids, you know? Yeah. And I imagine as I look at them, the story that I imagine about them is that these are kids that were crawling out of the rubble 12 years ago. They're the survivors of the last siege. And, yes. and here they are now because they have sound meaning in revenge rather than reconciliation the reason that i think you're uniquely suited to talk to us about this mahlod and this is not me condoning anything that hamas did on october the 7th or continues to do nor is mm. it me condoning what i think is an atrocious human catastrophe at the hands of israeli retaliation i'm just simply saying that like pulling a thread from what you just said humans were humans first and what I've learned is that those who enact violence tend to espouse an ideology that was shaped by suffering, by trauma. And one of the things I remember you shared with me as we sat in the Balada refugee camp is, is during, the, during the intifadas when the suicide bombers, when that strategy began to be enacted by young Palestinian youth, many of them were coming from Balada or places like the Balada refugee camp. And I remember I'll never forget that you said this. You're like, I will never condone that strategy. I will never condone that violence, but I understand it because I know these kids mm. and I know that behind every suicide bomber, there is a long, deep story of pain. Yes. And so exactly. will you help us? Will you help us humanize not only the Hamas insurgents, but help us humanize these young people? Cause they're young people on both sides of this horror that have been traumatized by ideologies. They've been lied to, you know, especially with the Hamas insurgents, they've crawled out of the rubble to try to make a world where that doesn't happen again and they're choosing violence rather than reaching for the hands of their enemies. Help us humanize these young kids, if you would.
1: Well, well, that's a big challenge, you know. I mean, talking about humanity, I mean, humanity is not only on the good side. Part of right. being a human, it's heaven. You know, we have the angel has, and we have the animal. You know, and it's our duty, our responsibility, to let which one to go yeah. the angel one or the animal one. And the, um, I mean, for what happened recently, the problem with the world that they think that the story, you know, starts on October seventh. They. T- totally ignored the context, the 75 years of, of the occupation and the the catastrophe and the displacement of the Palestinians and the whole narrative of the Palestinian story. You cannot just disregard this. You can't just put it on the shelf or throw it uh, in the trash. You came to Balata. You saw how life is there. I mean, 30,000 people living on uh, like point twelve percent of a square mile, 30,000 mm-hmm. people, you know? And you walk around, you saw how crowded it is and how packed, you know, it is, and the high poverty. And this is a, like a lifelong story. Palata is just a little example. In Gaza, it's even worse because Gaza is the most crowded, you know, high-density of population on earth. I mean 365 kilometers that inhabits 2.3 million people i mean this is unbelievable they have been under siege for 17 years you know what it means siege they cannot get out they cannot go in i mean it's a prison it's just an open air prison and uh, with the siege of course a lot of things cannot come in i mean I went together many times through my work. Otherwise, of course, I cannot go together. People have power, electricity, four hours a day for almost 17 years. How much this will affect their daily life, their daily routine, you know, studying, eating, the fridge, you know, business, work. Unless they have some money to to have a generator that needs fuel also to give them light and power for going on with life. Mm -hmm. In the the past, when we talked about the suicide bombers at that time, yes, nobody came out of the blue. They were all brothers or sisters or, you know, family members or best friends or somebody who was killed in front of them. And they were all very young, I mean, 17. In 18, 19, 20, 20, maybe 22, they, they all this stuff. So at the end, they are young people, teenagers, or even older, a little bit older, but their teenage years were, you know, the time that they, were, they lived in, in, in the situation, you know, where they were born to an atrocity that they received from their parents. And the same thing for Gaza, and it's even worse. Uh-huh. I can tell you, I mean, I don't know the people who attacked Israel on October 7th, but I mean, the norm that they are, yes, they are 18, 19, 20, 21, 23, maybe, you know, years old. Those kids, I am sure, as I am seeing you, they are from the families who were murdered in the war of 2004. 3,500 people were killed at that time, you know? And what would you expect? I mean, those kids it's growing up, no father, no mother, no uncle, no brother, or maybe they lost the whole family and they were the only one left. I mean very easy But us or any part of the factions, you know, to take them in and raise them and take care of them. And they will become fighters. But it's not that they want to come and attack and kill people just because they want to kill them. I mean, revenge is an issue, but also, I mean, we have to be honest, we are people under occupation, you know? I mean, in 1948, we lost our country. We lost our land. My father was born in Haifa, and he lost everything that he had and he owned in Haifa, and ended up living in the refugee camp. My mother, was born in 1948 because my grandmother, her mother, was pregnant, and they left their little town, you know, near Yasa, and they came walking to the West Bay, and in the middle of the road, but she gave birth to my mother. That's why they named her Azar, which means immigrant, you know. So this is a long story behind with a lot of pain. you know, with a lot of any suffering that at the end as a human being you can just disregard yeah it and take yourself out of it and you don't even think about it of course you will think about it because i mean as in 1948 the world came up with a solution to make you know all the people forget the atrocities that they suffered from and start a new page believe me people will just then get used to it and okay, it happened. Now I have a new life. It's It's going okay. But it didn't. It continued to be bad. It continued to get worse and worse, years after year. The camp where I was born in was established in 1950, 51. 48 to 51. People were living everywhere in the mountains, in caves, on the street, in schools. Then we moved into this refugee camp that was a bunch of tents. that went on for many years until they started to settle down and not settling down, but you know, like trying to live because the story is not ending. They thought it's going to go for a few years, two or three years, four years, you know, but look at it, it's 75 years and it is still there with more of the occupation in 1967 more atrocities, more people were kicked out, you know, and had another migration to Jordan or other places, you know. So the saga is not just stopping, it's just continuing. And Palestine, I mean, many people, you know, posted this map of Palestine before 1948 and now how it looks now, it's like green dots. I mean, everywhere you go, I live in Nablus, I cannot leave Nablus since October 7, and even before October 7, you know, it's very difficult to move from one city to another city. The settlers now are close to 1 million in the West Bank. This this is unbelievable. And they are not nice people. They are very extremist and they have the green light to burn, to attack houses, to kill Palestinians. And nothing nothing happens to them. They, on the contrary, they get appreciation letters. From some Israeli official. So they are encouraging them. They are all equipped with machine guns and they have the license to kill them. So, I mean, in in this kind of situation, and for a a child growing up, you know, many of the kids that I worked with in in and and they ended up joining the fights, they became militants and they were killed. And I told you last week, the son of my friend Fayez, who is the director of of the center, his son was killed by these Israelis in the clashes. I mean, why are they doing this? Why? I mean, if they have something else, if they have any other alternative and anything that will take this anger away and the grief for the loss of their family or friends. And I mean, Fayez has a lot of family also in Gaza, and he lost some of his cousins with their families so yeah. it's just continuing to happen yeah. all the reasons for anger is just getting there yeah so i mean this is on the palestinian side it's just an unnatural result or a natural outcome of living this kind of life generation after generation yeah and yeah israel is naive it's the structured you know violence it's the doctrine of the zionism that is taking over the souls and the hearts of the people there that always feeling that they are superior and they have to be protected they have to be safe and the others it doesn't matter i mean what happens to them and the reality is just what we are seeing those guys when they came to attack you know on october 7th they came thinking that they are doing the right thing, you know, because there are 6,000 or 7,000 Palestinian prisoners who are in prison for the last 30 or 40 years, and they were freedom fighters, and Israel is not letting them go. They thought that we will go and hijack, you know, the place, kidnaps some soldiers, and then we will do, you know, a deal, and we will get our people out. Things went out of control. I mean, the militants were... When they came in, they were coming to fight the armies. The people of Gaza, when they heard all this frustration of the 75 years, but mostly the last 17 years, even women and children and old people stormed into the settlements and tried to take revenge. So some bad things could have happened or they happened actually. But it was a result of this, you know, accumulation of anger. Yeah, I don't say... It's right, right or wrong, but the description that's you know, then, yeah. yeah,
0: that's yeah. so it's so I mean, helpful and it's so necessary for us. Um, in the West, there is just zero understanding by and large of a 17 year siege. I like, I'm even finding myself working with folks to help them understand that Gaza is a 25 mile by six mile, fully enclosed, as you say, open air prison, yeah, you know, and and as people begin to understand the. Geographic reality of that, what a siege actually means, how many people live in that space and what the last 17 years have looked like for these folk, not only in terms of the blockade, you know, air, land, sea, but like also a series of military campaigns, you know, and Hamas rockets, (laughs) meet retaliate. And so it's like, as I watch people build a more holistic understanding of this crisis, I think it helps them begin to understand, oh, the human beings behind the attack on October 7th are probably deeply shaped by stories of trauma, violence, and pain. You know, again, that is not a condoning what happened on October 7th. But if we're going to be pro-human, we can be pro-human to critique the action, the activity. But to be pro-human means that we actually have to understand the story of pain that lies behind it. I think the same thing is true for, for our is- Israeli Jewish kin. I remember being at Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and watching a platoon of kids, you know, I mean, they're like 16-year-old kids, Jewish kids, a platoon of them in their khakis being, you know, being escorted through Yad Vashem. And part of the story of Yad Vashem, from my point of view, is the world tried to eliminate us. God abandoned us, and we survived because of us. And then at the end of this tour, they place machine guns in the hands of 16-year-old kids and say, now it's your turn to ensure that this never happens to us again. Think about the trauma of a militarized society and the fear that's etched into their souls before they even have any human encounters with their Palestinian kin. Not to Mm -hmm. mention the structural violence that actually prohibits Palestinians from actually making the physical contact with israeli jews and vice versa that you spoke up earlier in this conversation yeah so like, the entire Friends. system is designed it seems to traumatize people to respond exactly like we see like we saw happen on october 7th and then the aftermath of this exactly yeah. and so we again it's amazing how hundreds of billions of dollars are being poured into the system of violence and retaliation and but, What's needed is hundreds of billions of dollars invested in leaders like you, Mahmoud, who are awakening the imaginations of traumatized young people to choose a life where they reach for the hand of one another rather than power. And that's the movement that we've got to keep. We've got to get a ceasefire on this thing to end the violence in the, as, as a next step. But as a global yeah, co- we community, we we've got to start thinking our, the inertia and the preference for violence that we have, thinking that's going to make us safe, when in fact, all it does is traumatize all of us. Nobody's winning. Yes, of
1: course. You know, I mean, if this thing is going to continue, and as they are, you know, claiming that they will end the mess, I'm going it's becoming an idea, you know? Yeah. It, okay. It's not an organization. It's not... In a group of terrorists or fighters, it, it that doesn't matter what you want to mm-hmm. call it. It's becoming an idea. It's becoming an ideology that now, I mean, in the election, there were 35%, maybe 40%. I mean, if they have elections tomorrow, they will get 99%. You know, mm-hmm. Because people think that they represent their pain, yeah. their suffering. They revenge for them. You know so that's the thing if the world is not going to wake up i mean the world i mean i don't don't mean the official world those people are sleeping and they are involved in their business or whatever interest but us the people especially the people in the us yeah normal citizens Mm -hmm. the humans the good ones one of the things that i liked about the us that the people are nice you know and they have good heart they just need to find this kindness mm. inside of them, you know, yeah. and stop feeling that they are so far away from everything. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, as I said at the beginning, it's our own responsibility now to prove that we are humans. I mean, a mm. long time ago, maybe we talked about some of those issues. One of them is the barrier wall, you know, the separation wall between the Palestinian area and the Israeli mm. area. They always said it's for security. I never believed that it is for security, it is for separation, to separate the people from each other. So the Israelis, they will not see us, only what they hear from their structured media and, you know, propaganda that behind the wall, they are all animals, monsters, terrorists, trying to kill us, shooting rockets or, you know, and yes, that, it's, that's how it was built, you know, for decades. But when Palestinians and Israelis meet in the US or in Egypt or in Turkey, I heard so many stories, you know, that many people became friends because they realized, both of them, Yeah, they are both coming to have a good time. They are both eating. They are both drinking. Maybe drinking June or alcohol. It doesn't matter. They go to swim at the same time and they can't play volleyball at the beach. Not knowing who they are, you know, and then they realize that who a Palestinian and an Israeli are having fun at the same time and feeling the shock, you know, that they can be friends. That's right. So that's the thing, you know. We have a big responsibility, my friends. We have a big responsibility, especially on your side. Yeah, ceasefire must come, you know, very soon. Yeah, and you
0: know, yeah. Give me, give me a last thought here, Mahmoud global immersion is working with American evangelicals, you know, and, and the work that we're doing is companioning them on a journey from a religion that dominates to a faith that restores. And right now that has to look like building power to actually get a ceasefire. We have to build the agency of our politicians and our representatives to actually move beyond their own ideology to demand a ceasefire here, put that kind of pressure on. It is critical. And as people of faith, I think we join you in an orientation that says our work is not just to bring an end to violence. It's to dismantle every barrier that separates us one from another. And that's the work that you're doing. That's the work that I'm doing in different parts of the world. That's what our brotherhood is built on. And so in in kind of your last word, what would you say to to American evangelicals right now? Like Like you have our attention. What would you say to us? Yeah
1: well i mean it's as simple as it is you know we are all human beings we belong to one god and let's break down the walls that separate us you know and and build paths roads that will connect us because eventually none of us will last forever on this earth we will have to go back to God and submit to Him. And we have a lot of questions to answer. So be prepared, go back to your humanity and believe that God is one and He loves us
0: all, regardless of who we are. That's it. I love you, my friend. Thank you for the gifts you. that you've given us, friends, as you're here right now, listening in and as you're re- uh, listening to the recording. if I think a way that we can support Mahmoud is to reflect back to him the ways in which you've been moved by what he just offered to us. And so I encourage you to do that and tag him in those comments so that he can see you. I think that he needs, to, he needs to be seen by us. He needs to know that we're holding his arms up as he contends for peace in a really dire space. So brother, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the gift of your friendship. I'm with you. I'm with you. My love to Miriam and the kids, okay? Yeah, me too. You're a great Sam, but you and to all our
1: friends, the good people of the U.S. and of the world. Love, all right, well. take
0: care of yourself. Stay safe. Be well. Right. The virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war continues live on Global Immersion's Instagram channel, at Global Immerse. Follow us there and please share these conversations broadly if you agree that they need to be heard. Friends, as the year-end approaches, I want to invite you to consider investing in peace by investing in global immersion. Your contribution allows us to continue to host conversations like this one. We're a nonprofit dependent on donations to continue our work producing inspiring media and training both everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides. Special thanks to our Embers community of monthly donors, Investors in Peace, who make the virtual immersion and this podcast possible. You can join our Embers community of monthly donors with a recurring gift of any amount. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion and donate at globalimmerse.org.